politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen yearning to be free here to the Conservative Review podcast. This is Daniel Horowitz, your host, back in the house for another day of fighting for freedom and liberty, sanity and common sense. Folks, there's a lot going on today. The big thing going on is that the purveyors of panic, the purveyors of tyranny, are now jujitsuing our energy against lockdown into a permanent new normal of reopening, but that reopening looks very different than it typically looked. These flat earth mask mandates It's funny how there seems to be a right to kill your unborn child, a right to castration surgery, taxpayer funded, by the way, but no right to bodily integrity to not have your oxygen levels restricted and walk around with that stupid thing when it's 90 degrees outside. We're going to talk today to a French researcher who really has some good insights into how this virus actually spreads how it transmits, what we should and shouldn't be doing, the stupidity of the masks, and many, many other questions about the science of this virus. But unfortunately, at this point, it's not really about science. As we talked about yesterday at great length, in Europe, they're following the science. In Europe, they're moving away from this. In Europe, they are downright engaging in a blame game as to who was so stupid to authorize this nonsense to begin with. While our politicians are doubling down, Republicans are either siding with it or balloons in the wind. President Trump is doing I don't know what. And you just take a look, broadly survey some of the headlines from today. Washington Post, a third of Americans now show signs of clinical anxiety or depression. This in the UK, attempted suicides by elderly may be increasing sixfold. New York Times, price of a virus lockdown, economic freefall in California. At the same time, Iceland is getting rid of the stupid two-meter distancing rule. Norway is saying that the viruses, the viral levels are too low to justify broad testing anymore, and they're canceling it. Switzerland is reopening everything except for gatherings above 300 people. But in America, we have mayhem. While our rights are infringed upon, New York Post, man charged in cruel New York City rape, was freed in two two prior assault cases this year. Terrible story out there. 56 refugees resettled in the last eight days from Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Burma, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Pakistan, and Somalia. And by the way, I apologize. I haven't had time to get into this, but there have been so many terrorism cases. Obviously, you had the Syrian um, immigrant who tried to shoot up a naval base at Corpus Christi. Um, This is really bad. And then, folks, speaking of fundamental rights, I have an article out today that's going to boil your blood beyond belief. I do want to get to our guest, special guest today, talking about the virus, but I just want to detour a little bit because this all ties in. Yesterday, the Supreme Court refused to issue a stay against the lower court opinion in Ohio, ordering 837 prisoners to be released. Now, they've been doing this on a state level. This is the first time they've done this to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The only people who dissented were Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. A couple days earlier... I I missed this, but on Thursday, with the exception of Thomas and Alito, the other seven justices denied a stay against a Ninth Circuit ruling mandating that the Idaho Department of Corrections must use taxpayer funding to literally castrate a male prisoner who thinks he's a female. So we have this much-vaunted conservative Supreme Court that can't even get fundamental rights straight. 
They're saying it's cruel and unusual punishment to have people who are convicted with due process to remain in prison during the pandemic after we already proved. First of all, it's over with. They've all anyone who got it has gotten it already. So there's no point in releasing them. We've already proved that most of them are asymptomatic, which in itself proves that this whole virus inside prisons or outside prisons is being overblown. At the same time, the Ninth Circuit ruled that it's it's cruel and unusual punishment not to castrate someone. This was, by the way, a sex offender, a male sex offender. See, typically people like you and I would say, these people should get castrated. And then the courts would come in and say that's cruel and unusual punishment. Now, if they request it, it's cruel and unusual punishment not to give it. I'm not making this up. I wrote about this in September. They applied for a state to the Supreme Court. Nope. So in other words, the Supreme Court has no problem recognizing those rights. And by the way, this is the second time they've screwed with Idaho and refused to save them for the Ninth Circuit. A couple months ago, they ruled, the Ninth Circuit ruled that Idaho's or Boise, Idaho's ordinance cleaning up homeless encampments is cruel and unusual punishment as well. So you have a right to taxpayer-funded castration. You have a right to murder your baby. You have a right to camp out on city streets. You have a right, after you're convicted as a criminal with so much due process, to be released. But when the states, or, or not states, but when the citizens appeal to the Supreme Court after the lower courts refuse to recognize rights of unalienable rights for citizens, peaceful citizens, that have their bodily integrity harmed, that can't move freely, that can't open their businesses, suddenly they don't recognize that cruel and unusual punishment. So again, there is a right to privacy to murder your baby per Griswold and Roe v. Wade. There is a right to privacy, to force the state to give you access to castration surgery and fund it too. But there is no right to privacy not to wear some stupid thing on your face when Fauci himself said two months ago that it's counterintuitive. Folks, we are living in the twilight zone. A lot of you, and I'm very thankful for our new listeners, we've really doubled our audience over the last two months. A lot of you have found that there is no show quite like this one that's independent, free-spirited, not tied down to any party or politician, is just seeking the truth, seeking information, seeking new ideas. That's why I need you guys to stand with our advertisers, the people who stand behind this show. And believe me, in this era of censorship, someone who is willing to stand behind our message, that says a lot about them. I want to introduce you guys to Ashford University. Go to ashford.edu slash Daniel. Check it out. Why is this so important now? One of the things shut down that I think could potentially result in actually a good outcome are the universities. So many of you, I've seen these stories where you have wholesome, conservative, religious homes. Try to raise your kids as best as you can. They go away to college. They get brainwashed. And they don't come away with the education that is needed to prepare themselves for an auspicious career. But at the same time, they do come away with a polluted mindset and a polluted worldview. We all have dreams. Small ones are easy to talk about. The big ones, the ones we really want, not so much. It's like if we say them out loud, they have no chance of coming true. Well, I say, when it comes to your future, dream big. The bigger, the better. And the dream of a better tomorrow starts with a degree from Ashford University. This is an online university. Why send your kids anyway? Why even fight to open up these places when they pollute your minds. This is a way your kid could maybe earn money part-time with a job while having a flexible schedule. It's time to look online for universities. Ashford in particular offers 60 plus programs, anything ranging from business administration, healthcare, psychology. Some of the key elements is that there's a 24 seven access to your classroom, daily support, financial aid available, And they pride themselves 
these teachers on actually having a passion for the profession. So most of them are working in their area of expertise while they're teaching. And they really make themselves accessible. Accessible to the individualized needs of your students. Get rid of all the overhead. Get rid of the chaff. And you get the wheat. The core values of Ashford University ring true at every level. Quality, ingenuity, empowerment, guidance, and equity. Folks, I dare you to dream big. I dare you to stop sending your kids to these universities that pollute their minds. And again, who needs the lack of flexibility? Who needs to walk around on a campus and wear a mask for the rest of your life in 90 degree degree weather? Next semester, change gears. Your tomorrow starts today at Ashford University. There's no fee to apply or standardized testing required to enroll at all. Do me a favor. Support this show by supporting Ashford. Go to ashford.edu slash Daniel. That's ashford.edu slash Daniel. Not all programs are available in all states. So check that out. You want to know, but I'm just telling you guys, this is a great way to solve numerous problems, kill numerous birds with one stone. So folks, anyway, I want, I promised to get to our special guest today from France. It's not too often we have international guests. So I really hope the audio does work out. If not, we might have to cut it short and reschedule. So just bear with me a little bit here because you're going to want to hear what our next guest has to say. As I've noted, interestingly enough, with all of the terrible fights that take place on social media, all of the bad things that get spread, if you know where to look, there's a lot of truth to find. And there are a lot of antibodies to the virus of falsity that you find online. And we've already brought on a couple of people throughout this crisis that I've never known, I've met through Twitter, and they really have good things to say. One of them is Dr. Daniel Gorbatenko. He's a free market economist, blockchain consultant, uh, living in France. He obtained his PhD in economics from Ex-Marseille University. Um, Notice he is not an epidemiologist. He's not a medical doctor. But he understands economics. He understands data analysis. He wrote a paper. It's not peer-reviewed yet, but it's a a paper online at SSRN. I'll post in show notes about how this actually transmits aerosols. And he has a theory that this does not transmit so much through heavy vapor from someone coughing or sneezing on you but actually through tiny aerosols in the air. Now we're going to talk about how this doesn't mean it's airborne in the sense of like measles, that you step outside, you step anywhere, it's going to go zap you. But it actually has tremendous ramifications for what we're doing and what we know about the virus. So with us today is none other than Dr. Gorbatenko to discuss his paper about aerosols. Hey, doctor, thanks so much for joining us today under these circumstances. Um, thank you, Daniel. Uh, it's it's a great pleasure and honor to to be able to um, to share my perspective. Um, so yeah, so the aerosol question um, came up in my research on COVID nineteen because I was hearing in the beginning we were all being told that the the predominant response, let's say, to COVID nineteen was was based on on science. And so I got interesting, interested actually in what the scientific basis for, for all this social, extreme social distancing and uh, hand washing and all this other stuff was. So I obviously I realized that COVID-19 was a new disease and probably the response was based on another um, respiratory disease, which um, we've been much more acquainted with, um, which is influenza. And, and when I looked into the recent research on influenza transmission, I was very surprised to find that it was actually much more tentative in its conclusions than, than the rhetoric of just follow the science uh, would suggest. Um, like 
one of the most interesting papers which I cite in my SSRN um, paper is um, a 2013 paper by um, Killing Lee and Nguyen Montan. They are two British um, influential researchers. Uh, and they, in that paper, they review the evidence about various um, routes of transmission, including the large droplet routes, the aerosol route, the like uh, contact route, the, the so-called fomite route, meaning that you get the you can get the virus from the object, and and also they talk about the possible responses like social distancing, mask wearing, etc. And but the most surprising thing about the paper was that its abstract starts with a phrase that, well. Um, remarkably little is known definitively about uh, the roots of influenza transmission. Well, I'm not citing like by heart, but it's very close. And, um, and that was, it got me intrigued, and so, so I read on, and I found that, first of all, in influenza, um, it's much more researched, including there is a very interesting thing there, which is the human challenge study. So human challenge study is basically you get healthy volunteers and you deliberately infect them and then see different things about how it, how it goes. And, and, and so some of the studies, for example, looked into the difference between infectious doses and the sort of an analog of, of uh, large droplet route is when you inoculate someone through the, through the nose. Um, and the analog, and with aerosols, it's also possible to um, deliberately infect someone by just basically also spraying someone into, into, into the nose, I guess. And, and what they were surprised to find is that um, the viral dose which you need to infect someone with aerosol is much, much smaller than the viral dose you need um, with inoculation. And the sec second thing that made some influenza researchers doubt the importance of um, the large droplet route was that they thought they thought about how you can get infected because basically, so someone let's say someone sneezes, and but it just it's not because like if large droplets like fall on your face, for example, it doesn't mean that they are where there should be for the virus to infect you. So, um, so you probably need to like a lot of sort of circumstances to converge. You need, you need very well-directed droplets and then someone should inhale at the same time. So many factors should coincide. And if you add to this, the fact that a much larger infectious dose is needed, to infect someone through the nose, then then it made really some researchers in influenza like doubt that it could actually spread a lot through um, the large droplet route. And then um, some of the same authors, you know, those two authors and a large team of researchers, even more recently, they conducted um, the largest um, recent human challenge study in influenza transmission. Um, it was a kind of a follow-up of an earlier study. And they basically took um, a large group of volunteers and they split it into two parts. So um, the first part of the volunteers, they were infected directly. So with intranasal inoculation. And they were supposed to infect the second part of the group. But remarkably, um, they collectively managed only to infect one, one person. And despite the fact that the, exper the experiment was conducted in very, in what they thought were very favorable conditions for transmission, you know, like very poorly ventilated, um, premises, relatively poorly ventilated with low relative humidity, but essentially the internasally infected uh, volunteers, they failed to infect the secondary attack group. And also um, the researchers, they noted that 
um, those those originally infected they were producing much less um, much less infectious aerosol than um, than people in you know then there is another study which they cite where people actually but well, the, the researchers um, measured the um, the aerosol produced um, by people infected naturally at the it was done in the, at the college campus and and so they they so the in the human challenge study they basically um, excluded some other explanations like that the virus that they used was somehow too weak like in 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 those circumstances or some other spots and and they they made two they proposed two explanations so either um in order to infect you need to have like really even even more poorly ventilated um indoor space or actually the transmission of influenza happens through a minority of um, of the infected who have basically a um, significant um, lower respiratory tract, in, tract involvement, so lung involvement basically. And um, and yeah, so 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 let, let me let yeah. me just you, you threw out a lot of information. I want to digest this for our listeners. Um, just again, understanding the difference between droplets, large droplets, when we say large, nothing's really large, but something that theoretically you could see, um, you could see the droplets from someone who sneezes, you know, anyone who has a sneeze attack, you kind of see that, um, whereas aerosols are, are really things you can see almost microbiology. Um, until now, anytime someone mentions the word airborne, they go crazy and say, oh, so this virus is even scarier and more transmissible than you think. But you wrote that the aerosol issue is one of, if not the most pivotal in COVID-19, that if the aerosol route is predominant, meaning not that, you know, most of it is transmitted through sneezing and coughing and so on, but that they emit aerosols, then the lockdown social distancing mask mask line of response is completely misguided and indoor ventilation boosting becomes key. So you're saying this reality that it transmits or possibly the studies from the flu would indicate that it transmits through little aerosols actually dictates to us that lockdowns and all this um, almost cult-like adherence to this social distancing is actually not helpful and actually doesn't address it. Now, we have a lot of quirks to this virus. We see, you know, a lot of people get it asymptomatically. We see that a lot of people, um, you know, they're, they're in a, you know, certain areas they don't get it, but certain areas they seem to get it. We're seeing that children, children, according to almost every study, cannot transmit it in meaningful ways you're saying that this would unlock the secret i'm not understanding the science behind it so could you walk us through it yeah okay fair, fair enough i should have probably started by defining the term so to speak even though it's kind of a bit tricky because you know in 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 the actual reality there is a different there is no like cutoff size you know between aerosols and and large droplets, it's kind of a continuum, you know, in, in a sense. But let's say the difference would be that the um, the aerosols basically are, no, the, the large droplets are a bit too heavy to stay in the air. So when someone produces them, they behave like, you know, like, you know, you throw a ball, you know, it moves, follows a trajectory and then it falls. So a large droplet will either fall to the ground or will land on an object like potentially a human face or, or or the nose or whatever. Um, in contrast to them, um, aerosols, um, they're light and they also quickly, especially that's why relative humidity matters so much because if, if the indoor space is relatively dry, then, then um, the aerosols basically dry out and what you have is the what they call the droplet nuclei, so basically kind of concentrated virus. Well, to, to, we won't go into much detail here anyway, but the thing is that, for example, social distancing 
is based, the idea behind social distancing is basically um, about preventing people from throwing droplets at you, so large droplets at you, at at the distance where this matters, so those six feet or whatever. And, and you're and you're saying you're telling us that that infecting someone that way is almost like throwing a basketball into a hoop at a half court shot. It's it's a lot harder than than it appears. Yeah, it's it's, it's quite yeah yeah. At least from from the influenza research, it seems that um, this is ineffective. Although, of course, there's a caveat that. Um, that uh, SARS-CoV-2 is is a different virus, obviously. Uh, but I think its difference is more relevant to when what it does when it enters the cell or how it enters the cell than uh, than from like the physic just the physical mechanism, you know, basically the viral particle reaching uh, the upper or lower respiratory tract. So, so I think probably. Um, the mechanism of transmission is pro- should be rather similar to to influenza. Although again, nothing nothing guaranteed here. You know? So, so I understand and, that you're saying how it doesn't work, or likely doesn't work through the large droplets, like we think. Now, they might sneeze and get on surfaces, and touching surfaces is a different issue, and then touching your face. Although, you know, our CDC doesn't seem to think that that's certainly at least the primary driver. Um, and they're certainly not saying that it's human to human. Yeah, similarly, there is a uh, paper from there is a research in you know Gangels, in which was the area the most affected area in Germany, and the researchers said that they couldn't culture well culture meaning they they um, tried to collect the virus from certain surfaces, but then they couldn't um, make it like multiplying the lab, you know, in a sense. So they made, so they made a conclusion that basically, again, you need some very unlikely, uh, like combination of circumstances for, for it to, to happen. So maybe someone can get infected from the surface, but like, it's not sure. the main way of. It's mainly human to human direct. And, you know, until now, the understanding was from a lot of people that it's the sneezing, it's the coughing. So they say, hey, stay away, wear a mask and everything. But you're saying, no, um, that's not likely to infect people for the most part. It's more the aerosols that these people emit. So then my question to you is, won't they say that, oh, well, that's even more um, of a microbiology problem, it could be floating around in the air anywhere, so then you really need to wear a mask? Or, in fact, are you saying that because they're so small, if you're in an area that is likely to get infected, the mask wouldn't help? So, so, so yeah. So, so first of all, distance, the distancing issue. So, the aerosols, um, there is actually a very cool video uh, made by uh, some Japanese researchers who look at what happens when someone releases um, aerosols in an in, in indoor space. And actually what happens is that they uh, basically spread out in the indoor space. So distancing doesn't seem to be such of a huge issue here, you know, in sense. At least, of course, if, you, if you're like, if you have a short, short range transmission, probably it, you have more chances to infect someone, but some some experiences seem to suggest that it doesn't depend so much on like the distance. Because you know, for example, the most amazing example for me is in Washington State. Um, there was a um, coral practice, um, and there were uh, like I think it's Mount Vernon uh, Church or something like this, and. So there were um, 61 participants, and there was apparently someone who had, like, at the moment, had some cold-like symptoms, and that person didn't think much of it. So, so also went to the to the to the rehearsal, and and what happened after was that 52 of the 61 participants got infected. And this is very difficult to explain um, through just 
you know, short, short range interaction, you know, it seems like, um, like the, the most plausible explanation here is that, um, singing is also, by the way, singing is known to release even more aerosol. So, so the, the, for me, the most, the most plausible explanation here is that they were singing and then that person was emitting aerosol, which was spreading around this, this space. And eventually so many people got it. But, but I also think importantly, people shouldn't be scared of most contexts because what really matters here is ventilation. Because if you look that, at that very video by the Japanese researchers, when they, a, a, when they add airflow, it quickly takes those, those um, small particles away. So when you are, for example, outside, even if someone releases aerosols, they will be quickly diluted sure. to concentrations, which and, are. And not that's important. why we're not seeing we're not seeing outdoor transmission. But what about indoors? What would you advise to the churches and things like that? Because they're saying, "Oh, well, that's why you wear a mask; it helps." So you're saying wearing a mask would not help for that because it's not really the sneezing that's doing it. Yeah, so masks. I mean, there is like there is a lot of contradictory research on masks, I would say, but it also depends, of course, on which type of transmission uh, we are talking about. So, if it's aerosols, then many researchers are saying that, uh, like at least the masks which are the most widely available, you know, like the surgical masks or um, the cloth cloth masks, you know, they seem to be um, they seem to be not very useful for. Uh, protecting against aerosols because the aerosols are just so small. But on the other hand, there are some papers saying that if the emitter is wearing a mask, then it can, but it's really, the research is, seems to be very, um, very, very tenuous at this point. So, so in terms of the emitting, I want to get to the emitting, what aerosols do and how that would explain some of the funny observations we all have about the virus, why some people get asymptomatically, but more specifically, could you start off by explaining, I didn't understand this part of your paper, why this would help explain. A lot of people are asking me, okay, Daniel, I believe you. You're telling me all, you know, all the studies show children do not, um, A, they're certainly not in danger, but B, that they're not transmitters in a meaningful way to adults. What is the biology behind that? So I think here, again, um, the research on influenza may be um, useful because uh, one of the papers that Killingley and Gwen Van Dam cited in their, um, in their research um, was about that college study in which they measured the virus in the aerosols which people emitted. And what they found was basically that um, um, the aerosol emission is essentially, first of all, it's not correlated with the upper respiratory symptoms. So if someone has, uh, like, if someone sneezes or someone, even like generally with symptoms, you know, it wasn't correlated with like fever or something like that. However, the only symptom it was correlated with was coughing. But coughing actually doesn't produce, you know, fine aerosols. Coughing is more like it's a more violent uh, sort of phenomenon. So it produces what they call coarse aerosols. So they, and, and they also found a lot of fine aerosols and infectious fine aerosols in just pure breathing, like literally without any cost, without anything, just people breathing, breathing was enough to, to emit aerosols. And they even have like an, like an amazingly bold hypothesis there. They hypothesize essentially that coughing is epiphenomenal in the sense that it doesn't, it's not needed for the transmission of the virus. It's just a symptom of irritation of the lower respiratory tract, but it's not something that virus, the virus evolved to cause. It's just, it's enough for an infected person to just be breathing, you know, because, and their hypothesis is basically the aerosols are mostly produced in, in the alveoli. So alveoli is basically the small air sacs where, you know, in the lungs where the gas exchange happens. 
And so when there is a viral infection, when it gets there, um, you have uh, inflammation. And so their hypothesis is that basically it's inflammation that causes uh, more production of aerosol and, and so more transmission. And so how to explain, how to go from here to potentially explaining why children are much less infectious, it seems to be that children are not getting that much of lung involvement, you know, lower respiratory tract involvement. So if the transmission of the virus is primarily through aerosols, then it's not a surprise that children are that infectious because they don't have much lung involvement. And so the aerosols are not being produced in, in their alveoli, you know. Well, well wait, so wait a minute. Have- wait a minute. Okay. I, I want to make sure everyone understands it because I think I understand it, but I want to make sure everyone's following. Again, connection's a little bit tough. You're um, on the phone from France today, and thanks for joining us again. Let me just make sure I get this straight. So you're saying it's garbage in, garbage out. The same way it goes in and goes out, the two work together. In other words, you know, we keep saying children barely get affected. They might test positive, but they're very much asymptomatic. The hospitalization rate is very low. Well, if the hospitalization rate is very low, that means very that very few of them are getting pneumonia-like problems where they're having problems with their lungs. At, at, at best, if, they, if they're symptomatic at all, it will be kind of like a cold, an upper respiratory infection. So... You know, a lot of people are asking, well, what do you mean kids sneeze and cough and they don't have any manners and they're all over you? So, God, I mean, they're going to transmit it like anything. And you're saying, well, yeah, the proof's in the pudding. They're not transmitting it. And that means because precisely because of what you're saying, it's not an upper respiratory phenomenon with droplets emitting from your nose, the sneezes. It's deep from the recesses of the lower tract, the lung infection. And because everyone agrees they don't really get it in a statistically meaningful way. So therefore, even if you get a positive COVID uh, child, they're you know they're not going to um, emit it because what they're emitting are not the lower tract aerosols that will wind up infecting people. Did I explain that properly in in English to our audience? Right, you're much. I would say you're much better than me at, at putting it succinctly and and. Um, and you did it quite well. And I would also add that it's not just children that, well, again, um, recently there was a study, a Chinese study. Well, we should always be careful, obviously, about Chinese studies, but, uh, but, they, um, but they basically um, traced all the um, 455 contacts of uh, an, asymptoma, an asymptomatic patient and and they found that that asymptomatic patient could not, like, didn't spread the virus to any of them. So first of all, this throws doubt already on the, you know, because one of the causes of fear, you know, about COVID-19 was that a large part of transmission was supposedly through asymptomatic, asymptomatic people. Which is why Although, they had to justify universal quarantine, even if you don't feel sick, but you don't know, you might have it. Look, so many are asymptomatic. Now, by the way, I would just stop you here. What's funny is, on the one hand, they they don't use the asymptomatic reality for the other the other side of the equation. Well, if most of it is asymptomatic, that means so many more people got it. That means it's generally so much more mild than you think, and the infection fatality rate is so much lower. No, they don't use it for those purposes, but they use it to say, well, you know, it's a silent killer. It could be going around everywhere. So I, it's funny because... I, you know, it didn't click with me when I read your paper fully. I kind of understood what you're saying, but if I get this correctly, and again, just to um, to verify what you're saying, you're saying there's nothing magical about children that they don't emit inherently. It's that it's 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 endemic of asymptomatic patients that anyone who is asymptomatic is unlikely contrary to what the original fear was, is unlikely to admit. And that's why you saw that study of 455 contacts of an asymptomatic patient who did not spread the disease. And you're saying it's just simply because given that children are overwhelmingly asymptomatic, like 99%, so therefore there is no way they could contribute meaningfully to the transmission like adults do because you don't have a large pool of symptomatic children. Is that how this kind of comes together? 
Yeah, I'll, I'll make just one caveat here that perhaps some, some a minority of asymptomatic patients may have lung involvement without like knowing it. Because you know the the famous case of um, the uh, Diamond Princess uh, cruise ship, the Japanese researchers they um, looked at the uh, lung scans of of many of the asymptomatic patients, and they found that many of them actually had um, like signs of pneumonia on on their lung scans, and but but I think. But wait, wait, wait. Can, can you explain that for a minute? What, what does that mean? I'm not doubting what you're saying, but I'm just not understanding it. How could someone have an asymptomatic pneumonia where where you have the virus literally attacking, latching onto their lungs, but it wouldn't bother you? And what, it just goes away on its own? Yeah, I, I don't know, because because maybe some of those people were asymptomatic at some point and, they, and then later became... became symptomatic so the right point for them is more like pre-symptomatic in a sense but pre-symptomatic yeah and also you know yeah maybe it's possible that pneumonia may sometimes be without symptoms at least without easily because maybe those people who have um, asymptomatic pneumonia if they actually try to do some kind of very difficult exercise you know you will they will see that they have um, difficulty you know, breathing heavily and, and stuff like this. Um, but then I would say also we should remember that cruise ship audiences are usually uh, much older on average than 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 the, than the society at large. So the Diamond Princess, um, the passengers of, of the Diamond Princess were probably much older on average. And that could explain why even some asymptomatic people there, at least at the time of um, testing, why they had lung involvement, because the older you are, obviously, perhaps the likelier. And also the cruise ship circumstances are very special. So obviously the, you can get probably much higher viral doses at the cruise ship than, than in the normal environment, because just how concentrated the interaction is and when you live in the small cruise ship cabin and stuff like this. So, so I think we shouldn't infer too much from this, but it could explain some of the asymptomatic transmission, but at the same time, we shouldn't probably believe that it's very, a huge thing. But anyway, I would say, I would say that regardless of whether asymptomatics or not are, whether they play an important role or not, because we obviously can make like long-ranging conclusions from one study um, in China. But but I would say regardless, um, the Diamond Princess study shows that even in asymptomatics, the aerosol route can be um, can be predominant. You know, so so the conclusion still still applies that that basically. Um, it's all about poorly ventilated and probably dry air indoor spaces and and the best way of for preventing people from getting it, the disease and especially getting the disease in in a severe form is first of all to to get them more outside you know to, because outside is basically very unlikely i think to to get um, infected and and in the indoor spaces, obviously the solution is uh, better ventilation. Sure, and, and, and you're saying maybe, if you're if you're a church or if you're an indoor um, venue, ventilation is a much bigger deal than wearing a mask. I would say so, yes. And based, maybe based perhaps, this, but sure. this is more speculative. Maybe more speculative is also, but it's also a winter issue. You know, it's also maybe about. Um, maintaining higher relative humidity, you know, and I even saw some suggestion that you need to be, well, I know I'm not, I'm not an expert on like microclimate, you know, of, of indoor spaces and stuff like that. But I saw an article which was suggesting like uh, in winter, like, you know, boiling a lot of water inside, but it's all, this is very speculative stuff. I don't want to like, to sure. But 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 it's something to think of, and and I just want our audience to understand just in general what you're saying. Um, 
that the aerosol issue, this is so important that we need to stop making assumptions. This is how it transmits. This is who it affects. Asymptomatic for sure. Spread it just to the same degree as symptomatic because the observations that we're seeing from asymptomatic, from children, from, you know, the way this seems to spread like wildfire in some areas, but really not so much at all in other areas, really does lend credence to this. And we're not going to run away with this conclusion yet, but it's not like we're getting good counter information from some of the governments, at least in, in, in the United States and the state governments. Um, I want to cover two more things real quick before you um, before you have to go. Connected to this issue of child-to-adult transmission, you were talking about this a little bit, and I want you to share with us. Nearly every study, whether it was Iceland, from Switzerland, from the UK, um, from Australia, Canada, I'm forgetting some, that said, look, you know, we can't prove it as a scientific law that they never transmit to adults. It's very hard to prove so quickly. But certainly if there is transmission, it is it, it really doesn't play a large role in community spread. That was the upshot of most studies. There was a German one that wanted to say no, that they pretty much could transmit it and do transmit it just as much as adults transmit it. Now that study is turned out to be wrong or 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 the conclusion was false. Could you elaborate on that? So yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's absolutely established that it was wrong. And a lot of people attacked the messenger, you know, because because this the the newspaper which um like publicized the finding, you know, was Bild. Uh, and Bild is considered to be like, you know, like Daily Mail in 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 England, for example. So a lot of people jumped on that, you know. But it's citing several researchers, and and what I see is that indeed they have, um, because you know, um, in every such case, um, you have a certain sample, you know, so the group of people you found, and what they studied in in a group of people of all all the ages, you know, basically they studied not transmission exactly, but how much virus they have in in the nose. So they took samples from the nose of children, adults, elderly, and they compared the viral concentration. And the conclusion of the original data was that basically there is no statistically significant difference between children and adults. And the criticism of of the paper is basically that the statistical methodology, the um, original authors have chosen doesn't really is is not sound so so it the conclusion should be actually the opposite that there is a correlation between the age and the viral load in the nose i don't know how much to make out of this study because because if it's true that it's the aerosols that are behind most of the transmission that the nasal concentrations don't matter all that much because it could be very different let's say in in the nose that and in the lungs, um, but yeah, but I would say that from what I see, I didn't study in huge detail, but it seems that the the like complaints that researchers raised about the, that study is they they are at least like uh, worth uh, considering, you know, and and also, I mean, I think we are all biased, you know. I should I think we shouldn't deny that. I mean, but to me, the biggest problem is that basically. Um, the predominant, uh, the, like the panic side, they only acknowledge that we are biased, basically, that we are biased against uh, all those very draconian restrictions, you know, we are biased and so we search for any piece of evidence to confirm our point of view. But here the problem is that the main author of the, that study on, on the viral load He's considered to be a sort of uh, the German alarmist in chief, you know, his, his surname is Drosten and he's like sort of a German uh, Ferguson, although I would say he's a bit more, he's a bit more of a sound scientist than Ferguson because I think Ferguson is more of a modeler than a scientist. And, you know, I as an economist have, you know, some 
some complaints about modelers in, let's say, for example, macroeconomics, you know, I often, when, you know, before COVID-19, I thought, I had thought that nothing can be worse than macroeconomic models. And then I, I've seen, I saw them, the epidemiological ones, and now I'm not so sure. <laughs> and, and I think you're making a very good point, which is why economists like you, or I've had systems data people like Justin Hart, you know, I know you follow him on Twitter. I had him on from San Diego. And the reason why some of us out of the box, I think, are, are getting it is because we're studying the reality of the world. I'm a, I'm a political guy. I'm a public policy guy. So I study the world as it exists. And I observe the world. I don't model things. I study what is happening. And what is happening clearly doesn't demonstrate what the other side is saying. We see a lot of things that we're proven clearly were proven right. Some other things we're still trying to prove or at least study because no one else is trying to put out good data, good information, and it, and it truly is a shame. Um, we're almost out of time here. I want to get to one more thing, and that's New York. Until now, I always wondered if there was some sort of phenomenon where commensurate with who spread the virus to you, commensurate with the degree of the case, the severity of the case that he has, that's the severity of the case you get. So my thought was, I was wondering if asymptomatic transfer asymptomatically, if mildly symptomatic transfer mildly symptomatic, and if severely symptomatic, give other severe symptomatic cases. Based on what you're telling me, that it has to do with the aerosols emitted from the lower tract of those who get it, could it be that the explanation for New York, and when I say the explanation for New York, I mean not only that more people got it, but that the IFR, the infection fatality rate, does seem to be some degree higher to a certain extent than anywhere else in the United States. Could that be because once you get people in a close environment, whether it's the New York subways, whether it was the New York hospitals, that initially had very bad cases, which say are a certain percentage, it kept feeding on itself and transferring over a severe case? Or does it totally not work like that? Does it just depend on your inherent immune system that could be different on everyone? Yeah, I think obviously New York is a big puzzle, you know, and and yeah, it seems to be, it seems to me, to be like sort of a, like Lombardy, you know, in Italy, it seems to be, or Madrid, for example, in, in Spain, it seems to be a sort of perfect storm, you know, where you have everything, you know, like you have, yeah, you have what you mentioned. Like, I think initially I've seen, for example, there was a strong correlation between, because for New York, there's actually data um on every zip code, you know, and how many cases are in, have been um, confirmed in, the, in that zip code and how, and various characteristics, you know, and there was very strong correlation between the, um, you know, this, the household size and, and the number of um, confirmed cases in, in the zip code. So it kind of, yeah, it kind of says that when you make people stay inside in, in large households, then they are much more likely to be uh, to be infected. And unfortunately, there is no no data of for death in the same zip code, so it's hard to say. But I think New York is 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 yeah, is a perfect storm in in several other ways. I think there is a very low there are very low levels of vitamin D in in winter because a lot of people don't go outside and there are a lot of um and some some people from from the from the minorities have been very hardly hit and i think there's probably also an explanation related here because you know it seems to be that um vitamin d plays an an important role in how severe the disease is which you get although again there are some people who are criticizing this but it seems a lot of researchers seems to seem to believe um this is important and that, that would explain much of the problem because, first of all, if your skin color is darker, then you need to spend more time in the sunlight to get the same. Really? Um, yeah. You wow. Need, you, you need to spend more time in the sunlight to get the same. Um, That's astounding. That's astounding what you're telling me because you look at the data here in the United States um, and it's just remarkable. It's It's remarkable – 
the difference. Um, blacks, uh, the death rate is, is is clearly the highest. You look at the national data, you look at New York City data, then Hispanics, then then you know Caucasians. After that, I know I live in Central Maryland. Um, there's a large black population in Baltimore. From what I'm seeing where I live, pretty much anyone who died was black. And, and you know, a lot of people talk about inherent maybe immune systems, genetics, and also lifestyle um, and health concerns because, you know, there is a higher rate of obesity and diabetes. But it, but, but that would be situational. So it would be only those people who would get it. But it, it seems a lot more widespread. So the theory you're positing about vitamin D levels and having to do with with skin color, which I never knew. I'm I'm wondering that 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 does sound very interesting. Yeah, it definitely is, and I think and it's not just in the U.S. that you have this. I think in in the U.K. in the U.K. you also seem to have like um, people from with darker skin having um, more uh, more severe disease on average. Although again, all this is very provisional data and and stuff like this, so I wouldn't be too confident. But yeah, I would say that if if vitamin D is important, then then this would probably explain some of this, uh, you know, um, excess burden of COVID nineteen on 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 those on those communities. And New York also, I guess, I don't know, and also maybe I don't know if New York. There is something special about New York in terms of like average uh, BMI, for example, uh, but. Like obesity seems also to play to be a very strong predisposing factor. So maybe New York is not so special, but if you put all of this in the same like basket, you know, and also the the I guess the the climatic the weather conditions, you know, because I, I guess New York basically in the period where it transmitted the most, it's like probably was similar conditions to Lombardy, you know, like a bit above 10 degrees Celsius. I don't know how much Fahrenheit. <laughs> I'm not used to Fahrenheit uh, scale. And probably uh, in winter, like relative humidity inside is also low. So so I guess a lot of factors um, in New York. And also we need, there needs to be some, yeah, probably some investigation into hospital super spread, you know, because in Lombardy, there are, for example, and even in the UK, there are signs that a lot of people who were initially infected were like when it started like really exploding. You know that it, that hospitals were very important in transmitting it, especially to very fragile, you know, people. Um, and someone probably should re- research what happened in Queens, for example, and. and at the hospitals there, or and also the final factor, of course, is what is what Andrew Cuomo did, you know, when he forced um, nursing homes to accept thousands of um, COVID-19 patients, you know, back to their premises. You know, this is this is insane. This is just like I don't know. And, I know and, and again, and again, it's interesting that this is just a theory of ours, but. By definition, these were patients who were hospitalized, so they all had already had a pretty severe case by definition. So, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if perhaps you throw in 10 people into a home that had severe case versus another study where you, you would have 10 people that were asymptomatic. Well, could it be that maybe in the former case, it would spread more severely or it would present more severely in those that wind up receiving it? Um, just again, these are all all theories. Uh, yeah, it's it's, it's all con- it's pro- it might be connected. Yeah, in the sense that if 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 it happens again, mostly through aerosols, and yeah, if you get someone back who was hospitalized probably with pneumonia, and when you send that person to recover in the nursing home, then yes, then that person is probably still creating a lot of aerosol, and and you might quickly spread it in those closed premises to a lot of people. So, yeah, so it could be, it could be, again, a perfect storm of, of factors. But, yeah, I mean, obviously cases like New York, Lombardy, Madrid, um, like some areas in the UK, I guess, should be probably and hopefully will be studied because, because the difference really between 
like the infection fatality rates for various regions is enormous. Like in Japan, for example, it's the biggest, probably the biggest mystery of all because of how few deaths Japan, Japan has despite essentially doing almost nothing about it, even not having like the sort of, you know, mass testing that they had in South Korea, for example. Sure, sure, um, and 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 they got Tokyo, which is the. I mean, the, you want to talk about densely populated. Tokyo blows out New York City. You want to talk about subways? They're all on subways there. So yeah, I mean, it is certainly an enigma. There also is an interesting theory. I I just have an article as we're recording now came out, um, theorizing about the whole cross immunity issue from other coronaviruses that it could be some of the Asian countries have a lot more than some of the Western countries. Um, certainly a lot to think about. Folks, I want you guys to go to at Danil Gore. So that's D-A-N-I-I-L-G-O-R on Twitter. He has a lot of enlightening things, things that you wouldn't see necessarily from Europe. Um, really good information. And that's really the thing. I'm obviously a big conservative. Um, Dr. Gorotenko is a free market guy. We have our biases, but we also have our intrigue. And what is so shocking about the media, at least in America and the political class, is that there is no sense of intrigue. Do you want to get to the bottom of what destroyed our country like nothing else, especially when you plan on making this the new normal indefinitely and in a lot of different ways? Let's get to the bottom of some of the transmission issues, how it transmits, how it presents itself. Um, let's not you know, assume things are correct because we've seen one after another everything they assumed was wrong. Um, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Gorbatenko. Please uh, come back again and update us. Folks, we're out of time. Till tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. <laughs>